Welcome back to A Place Called Porch. Today I've got Justin Rowland, better known throughout the porch community as Bobo, and Mr. Keith Martin, who's our tribal council member. And um, Bobo works in the cultural department. He's also my um, one of my favorite, one of my two favorite brother-in-laws because I only got two. <laughs> 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 I like to think I'm the favorite. Yeah, I, I definitely get to see you quite often. Um, but uh, I'm glad to have both of you gentlemen with me here today. And today we are going to be talking about land um, here in Porch and across Indian country and why land is so important and also why, um, why it's so important, but also what we are doing with our land currently. And so the reason I've asked Bobo and Keith to be here with us today is because Bobo works in our cultural department, but he also works real closely with the Conservation Corps, um, with our youth, and he's out and about in the community doing a lot of stuff with our land. Um, And the reason I asked Keith to be here is because Keith is my land go-to guru anytime I need answers about how much land we have, what we're doing with our land, what construction projects are going on. He always seems to know what is going on. Um, So thank you both for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. So let's start off just talking generally about land. What, in y'all's opinion, what is it about land that is so important and that from a cultural and a Creek perspective, or maybe just a Native American perspective, what is it about the land that makes it so such a treasured resource for us? I think it deals a lot with, you know, we, the land was ours. You know, that's how... We lived our life, the plants, the animals. We was all one, you know. So that's the biggest thing is we're all one thing, and so being able to walk around barefooted outside, moccasins on, shoes on, how we are today, you know, this is who we are. The land is us. We take care of the land. The land take care of us. Keith, what are your comments about the land? What have you seen that makes it so important? Maybe even historically or maybe today? Well, I think it's, you know, comes from our upbringing. I agree with Bobo. It's, it is us. Uh, but you get to, you keep it nourished and take care of it, and it feeds you and your family and all your loved ones. In different ways, maybe, maybe trees, maybe, you know, grazing for cattle, maybe row crops. Um, I would like us to see us grow, get more land, and be able to be self-sustaining in case COVID comes back ever again or something worse. Would like us to be able to have seed to to grow corn and and peas and okra and everything that you know squash but we have to create a program to store more of that so we can be self-sustaining in the future now i will say that during covid 
Keith, you were one, you were definitely a proponent, and I can't say for certain you were the main one, but I know that you were certainly a person sitting around the table that was pushing for the tribe to expand our gardens and to um, make sure that we were as sustainable as possible because, well, I'll let you tell the story about what happened with us during COVID um, with food, what happened with our food and the availability and all that. And while we have kind of moved in that direction that we have um, with our gardens and meat processing plant. Well, with the gardens, that's, I say that goes back to our way we were raised too. You know, the the, the people who the, the the elders that did own property would grow crops, and once they had enough for themselves, they you know it was come pick everything you want, uh, but nobody wasted it. Nobody really hoarded it and took it all. It was shared amongst the community. And I used to hate picking peas and, <laughs> and cucumbers. And, you know, now that I look back, I'm glad that it did instill in me you know, a sense of that you need to do that, have that type of a program, that type of a system. Because one day you never know this world food supply. Uh, it scared the heck out of me during COVID. Uh, I tell this story, went into Walmart and no hamburger meat, and then Sam's Club was no hamburger meat. Uh, and I thought with their buying power, they'd never run out of anything in the world, but they they did. And it kind of rattled me a little bit because as a tribal leader and you're, you're, you're responsible for the well-being of your people and you know, you got to have a game plan on how something, a world calamity happens again. You better be prepared a little better than we were for COVID. Nobody was prepared, prepared for COVID. I don't know that we'll ever be fully prepared for anything, but we need to be thinking in that direction. So I had Billy and Brandy on um, kind of talking about the land from a historical context. And I just kind of want to loop back to something that they said and touch on something that you mentioned, which is that garden, it fed the community. And um, and I think I talked about it whenever I was sitting with them, too. I think it is amazing that from a historical context, and Bobo, you know about this, too, Creek people were communal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking the same thing. You know, we got the community garden. Plus, you know, I got a garden at home. I'm pretty sure Keith may have one at home too. Um, you know, even long time ago, that's that's how it was. Each family had their own small garden, and then you had this big community garden. You know, you was able to walk outside and grab an ear of corn or squash or whatever you you planted. But then the whole community had this big garden and was able to go out there and pick it you know so just me thinking about that at that moment just kind of was a mind-blowing thing for me Mm -hmm. because we haven't really in a lot of ways you know maybe we have strayed from our roots and we we conduct business we conduct our daily lives a lot different than they would have you know even 50 years ago but in some ways, I think there are some things that are so deeply ingrained in us that we continue to live life that way. You instill, and you know, uh, 
of course, the Bible talks about that raise up a child the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. And in some ways, I think that our culture is the same way, too. Um, it's so deeply ingrained in who we are, you know, you tending to the land and um, working with the land instead of against it to get it to produce the things that are going to sustain you and sustain your family and your people. And I think it's a, it's such a, a beautiful thing to recognize that we are still living that way today, too. Um, what are we doing in the ways of conservation, because if you think about across Indian country, that's something that comes up about preservation of, you know, whether it's sacred sites or culture, language. Um, but also there's, you know, an ideology about preservation of land. Um, what is it called? Uh, seed banks, Keith? Yeah. Um, so these seed banks, mostly I hear of it in the Pueblos and some in Oklahoma. And this field corn you get nowadays is a hybrid type of seed, and they've genetically altered it uh, in a lab, and it it doesn't reproduce like native uh, seed would. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would like to see us create our own seed bank for corn, squash, okra, you name it, uh, because it just would protect our future in a way. Uh, you know, if it's a, such a calamity that, you know, a nuclear war, I don't think anything's helping us, but these famines and what is the word for uh, these uh, COVID was a, Pandemic. The pandemic. Mm -hmm. Worldwide pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think it's in the Bible, more and more that's coming. So mm -hmm. we need to prepare as best we can. Mm -hmm. May not help, but sure make me sleep better at night if we were prepared. Think it get rid, rid of some of that gray hair you got? I don't think the gray hair is going <laughs> <on. laughs> So, Bobo, I know that y'all are doing some things. What all are – so – our audience may not be aware, but we do have a conservation court. So, um, it's a it's a tribal youth conservation court. Um, you know, we try to do different things throughout the year. Um, we usually get you know three students that apply for the job, and we keep them for about a year now. And uh, you know, one of the biggest projects we kind of took on last year was. Um, we redone a nature walk, boardwalk, that's out at Magnolia Branch, um, kind of over at the uh, box turtle habitat that we have. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one project we did. Took us all summer, but, you know, it was a teaching moment to the young men that I had, you know, a lot of people don't know how to use a screwdriver or a drill or a saw, so... You know, that was a good teaching moment to teach you know, these kids how to use this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we also do a small garden at the at our building at the Porch Creek Community Center. Um, so we try to keep one all year long. Mm -hmm. um, right now we got some corn, some squash, rutabagas, uh, tomatoes, 
some collards are still growing. And, um, you know, so we try to, and we, we take, you know, what we harvest off of the crop, we, we take it home or we go, we go around the community center and give them to people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just for me. It's just for whoever wants something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we deal with that. We work with um, environmental departments several times throughout the year. We work with you know the forestry department with James, um, the hunting club. You know, there's different aspects of different departments that we work with throughout the years. Um, I mean, we don't give them all the time we have. But, <laughs> you know, if we can go in and help out a day or two or a week, you know. That's what we're doing. And, you know, we just, I'm learning myself. Sure. Well, I think if you're not learning, you're probably six feet under. Um, (laughs) But, you know, you talked about the box turtle habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, So y'all are kind of involved in several different things like that. So you got the box turtle habitat. I've heard you talk about gophers. Gopher tortoises. Mm -hmm. Why are those important to our environment? (laughs) So box turtles, um, you know, you get into more the traditional side. You know, you had shell shakers. Mm-hmm. You know, the women was the shell shakers. And that's the shells of those turtles is what we had. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was, you know, you know, of course, you know, the women kept up the rhythm. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful sound when you throw some river rock in them. And these our women get to shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, go for tortoises. They are pretty much a keystone for many different species. They're, they dig a burrow into the ground, and there's 306, 360 different species that utilizes that hole. Really? Yeah. So, wow. I mean, there's things that I've never heard of, a gopher frog. <laughs> I've never seen one. I may have, but I just don't know them. Uh, Keith, you ever heard of a gopher frog? No, sir. No, ma'am. <laughs> so then, I mean, rattlesnakes, they love going in them holes. The indigo snake, uh, rabbits, other tortoises, um, squirrels, foxes, whatever needs to needs a house. Mm-hmm. That tortoise had built it for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of talking about conservation a little bit you you we're burning up burning the land mm-hmm. you know so you start burning the land this fire gets really hot well what are you going to do how do you get away from it mm-hmm. well either you know if you're a deer you can probably run and jump through it be all right but if you're a snake you can't jump Mm-mm. so what are you going to do go underground so Usually that's where they'll go is find a gopher hole and go up in it. And snakes are really, I mean, now I hate a snake just as much as the next person. I agree with you. But they are they are critical to our environment, and they keep pests and termites and all that under control, too. They do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, um, I watched this documentary. It's called Gather. Have you watched that documentary, Keith? I have not. It's on Netflix. Y'all got to watch it. But um, it's a it takes a um, a viewpoint of how some Native American tribes 
are using their food sources and they're going back. There's been a there's been a trend over the years of um, instead of continuing to like genetically modify and and change and you know do genetic uh, genetic engineering of our food, the more research they've done, they've realized like that's not healthy for us and it's not doing for our bodies what it really should be doing. And so there's been a trend to go back and go to more of a pure form, which is what you were touching about the seed banks, because those things are certainly more healthy for us. They're more nutritional. They're not modified. They're not engineered. And with our Native American population, of course, it's no surprise. And I think it's pretty well known that we have a lot of um, occurrences of diabetes and heart disease and obesity. And, you know, where do those things stem from? Well, it's, it's a historical thing. You know, it's you go back to rations and commodities and what was available to to us at those times. Keith, did you were you raised on commodities? I was sitting here thinking, hey, what do you know about a commodity? I don't. Oh. <laughs> uh, Thank God. No offense, but you're mighty young. I am. I am. I'm a young woman. Um, I'm going to hold on to that as long as I can, too. <laughs> I do remember commodities and going and waiting in line in the summertime with the heat like it is, no AC, and you know, going. my granny would get a ride to town and take us with her and We'd wait in that line and get about three or four bricks of cheese and uh, powdered milk, and I I hated the powdered milk. Mm. But, uh, we got every, anything that my granny could get, she would get because she never let anybody go hungry. Tried her best to feed everybody, and it was just the way it was back then. Mm-hmm. I think that had been like 1970, maybe something like that, 71, 72. Mm. Yeah, I think the only taste that we had of that would probably been what, Hurricane Ivan. It come through and you know out of power for two weeks. You know, so that might be a little bit of what yeah, our elders had to deal with. Mm-hmm. There was meals ready to eat, uh, but yeah, I remember commodities not fondly. Mm. Not even the commodity cheese. I always hear commodity cheese is the bee's knees. It guaranteed to stop you up for a few <laughs> days. <laughs> what are we doing? What are our goals when it comes to land these days? In a way, it's Big Brother allowing us to buy back land. It was ours. It was our ancestors. Um. So through IGRA, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, they allow us to game, and we, as a tribe, approve a uh, revenue allocation plan to and submit it to the BIA, and that and that they're and use it for cultural uh, cultural projects within your tribe, housing, education, recreation, and there's land. Mm-hmm. Uh, health of six buckets actually, and I think Igra was created with the idea of Big Brother, you know, 
the government not not giving us any more land, but us purchasing our own land back as we could. Maybe they didn't even have that in mind, but that's what it's evolved to. Mm. And I just think that as I've gone to D.C. for the last nearly two decades, a landless tribe, in my opinion, does not have much weight when they go to the microphone. Mm. Uh, large land-based tribes... They get a lot of clout, a lot of respect. Immediately, you're going to be listened to. Uh, if you ain't got land, you ain't no kind of man. Mm. Is, uh, one of the lines I remember Monk Otha telling me. Really? And uh, Well, he would shoot it straight. Yeah, but... Not just that, it's about doing what's right for your people and having it. And one day it may be all we have. I don't think, well, in my opinion, gaming is not going to stay at the level it is. I don't think anything in the world sustains itself as long as we need that to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we're so adamant about diversifying and buying these hotels. And as we buy land, I think that it's something the tribe and the future generations can always fall back on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with you, Keith. And I, I mean, I know that sometimes uh, the tribe has gotten a little backlash about why are we buying up all this land? Why we keep buying up land? We, you know, what are we doing with all of it? But I've heard so many times that land is probably one of your safest investments because it will always be there. Um and, you know, you may not have a plan for it, which, you know, depending on who you talk to, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not such a good thing, but at least you got it. And like you said, you can fall back on it if you ever need it. I hope we never go back to having to tap pine trees for turpentine, but uh, that's kind it'll of be there for if we do. Have you ever done that before? I've tried. I <laughs> I, I've tempted it. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't quite successful. <laughs> it gives you a whole different appreciation, though, don't it? It does. It does. Um, Keith, how much land do we have? Approximately 21,300 acres right now. And is all of that land in Alabama? We have about eight acres in Escambia County, Florida, over toward the Alabama, um, Escambia River. In the Molino area, mm. we have one acre of trust property at uh, at Nokomis. We own, well, we just purchased Magic City Casino in downtown Miami. That's about 100, no, that's about 28 acres. Gretna, Florida is about 128 acres. Um, we had Pensacola Dog Track. I don't remember the track there, but we have... Some small uh, small holdings and spread out through Florida. So Alabama and Florida, then. Yes, ma'am. You know, you got Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and now Illinois. So. Aruba and Curacao. Well, well, we don't own that. That's uh, no, nobody owns any land there. I think it's all leased from the government. Oh, yeah. that's super interesting. What kind of um, land issues do we see? Do we because. And the reason I want to talk about this, too, is because, you know, um, and Keith and Bob, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but Keith, I know with you going out and about in Indian country, um, you referenced, 
you know, your trips to D.C. and such. But you've met tons and tons of um, Indian people from other tribes. And there are all kind of land issues going on and even hunting and fishing rights and, you know, what they can and can't do with their own land. Can you speak about that a little bit? Because that's something we don't really see here so much because, I mean, we've got a hunting club and I feel like we have pretty well control over what happens there without much, if any, oversight from the federal government. But I'm not familiar with that, which is why I ask y'all to be here with me today. Well, all of our timberlands, so there's 339 acres of trust property. Uh, in Alabama, you got the tribal reservation. I think there's uh, 30 acres that we took somewhere in there, and then there's 12 acres at Montgomery. Mm. But, you know, we haven't had any trust land since 1988 added to our our role, land database. But uh, the hunting club in Alabama, we're, we're we are governed by the state law. I see. We're, at, we're, we're off trust property. So we abide by all all the uh, all the state laws on in on Porch Creek land. But out west you got millions of acres and the tribes you know don't have a relationship like we do with their county or their state and it's still a lot of animosity and tribal members can hunt year round that contradicts state land if they get off trust property some of them think they can still hunt mm. year round and some states allow them to hunt year round mm. uh, but some states don't this is a mishmash of different rules and regulations and problems uh, I could go on and on and on well and well but it you know it, it's it's a sad reality, honestly, because, you know, you have these tribes, and especially the ones out west. Well, I mean, it really could be anywhere, because I think that the older I've gotten, well, I think whenever I was younger, I had this um, misperception that all other tribes except for Porch are fluent in their original language, that they're carrying on all of their stories and that original way of life, and that isn't the truth. That is absolutely not. That is, I think it's 50 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, 600 something tribes, I'd say 300 of them have lost their, know, their old ways and their culture and their language. I don't even know if there's very many fluent Muscogee speakers anymore, even in Oklahoma or Seminole. Bubbo, do you know off the top of your head? I don't know a number, but it's dwindling. Dwindling down, and um, I and I think that was one of the things with COVID too. Yeah, COVID hurt. Um, you know, of course, we didn't. I wouldn't. Don't think we really had a fluent speaker here. But you know, the ones that we do know are mainly in Oklahoma. Seminole was the fluent ones, um, and of course, they were mainly elders. Mm-hmm. Your older people. And then, of course, COVID come in and done some damage yeah yep but i i've even heard of like um fishing rights and stuff like that too and it's it's sad because i say it's a sad reality because 
it's, I think there's become more awareness and recognition of what the federal government has done to Native people in more recent years and with um, more media campaigns and just the availability of information and communication being at an all-time high. You can find out just about anything you want to by doing a Google search. And um, what, you know, what people are beginning to realize is the atrocities that were committed against Native people. And that's kind of putting it mildly, really. But in a sense, whenever you start looking into some of the existing issues and just talk, you know, just just keeping it limited just to land only, what you're finding out is that is still being those atrocities are still being perpetuated because they're still because of the oversight, they're still causing assimilation because a lot of tribes are not allowed to live life and continue their culture the way that they were, I will say, intended to. Yeah, fishing right issues are, I'm hearing more and more of that on the national level. They're most, well, not mostly, but a lot of those are Northwest Pacific and Northeast Atlantic uh, issues with tribes up there. Like Washington State. Washington State, where they dammed the, the rivers and stop the migration or of uh, salmon and there's other fish my mind went blank but it has had a you know forced those tribes to seek another way of sustainability for their for themselves and they still haven't found it mm-hmm. you know and slowly they're getting some uh some rights back mm-hmm. we're actually looking at a uh, a plan to uh, help with the uh, Tom Bigby River to uh, where there are dams in Alabama to put a spillway around some of those where some of these fish can migrate back up hmm. to the north the northern part of Alabama. Huh. Uh, it's, it's, there are a lot of different issues. It's complex. Uh, has, each tribe has its own little nuance of a problem. But it's all a big, in the end of the day, it's all, you know, attack on Native Americans and their sovereignty and their right to govern themselves and fish and hunt as they used to and grow what they want, you know, what they used to. And and even, um, even as far as being able to, like, collect um, sometimes medicinal plants, and um, I have heard... Um, I want to say it was like in Cherokee, North Carolina. I've got some good friends up there, and I've heard them talk about how there are certain areas of the forest where they, you know, there are certain medicinal plants and things that they need to be able to collect, and they can only do it at certain times, and they're restricted on, you know, there are certain restrictions in place, and I can't speak um, intelligently about that, but... Um, I know enough to make me dangerous, I guess, as they would say. But it's but it is a huge issue, and I think um, one thing that people miss is I think oh, it's just hunting and fishing, but there's a lot more that goes into it than that. It's a whole cultural and even um, even a ceremonial aspect of it too. It's a way of life, and it, it was a way. Um, there were a lot of stories attached to that too, um, and you know how do you you know what. What means do you use to hunt 
hunt? You know, what weapons are you using and how are you catching those fish? And, you know, it all goes into um, a lot of cultural aspects of it, too. And so you're right, Keith, it's it's a chipping away at what makes um, a big part of, of who, who we are as Native people, too. It's the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I'll let Bobo touch on the uh, medicinal side of it. Uh, he knows a lot more about that than I do. I might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, just hunting for food. Mm-hmm. You know, like you kind of touched on a little bit was you know you're out there hunting for these medicinal plants too. Um, the main ones, to me, I feel like they hide. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a thing of cat and mouse that you just got to go out there and hunt for Mm -hmm. and you know there's there is peace behind it too Mm -hmm. go go out there fasting and praying and you know get get a whole lot closer to the creator and you know all of a sudden there There it is there's the plant that's what i need (laughs) Uh, but sometimes i mean there are you know abundance of different things that you can go and grab and you know if you're living out in the woods or, you know, that's what you that's where you spend most of your days is in the woods. You know, you get a mental picture of where different things are. Mm. Um, but like you kind of was saying back in up in Cherokee, you know, you only got these certain times to go out and get them and stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of the same way here. You got different rules as far as, you know, if you're going to harvest these plants Mm -hmm. sometimes you got to do them at a certain time and then you know it just it works that way Mm -hmm. and i've also heard um referencing back to cherokee the way that they harvest is sustainable and i think that's another um thing too is uh a lot of our um, indigenous teachings are grounded in how do you keep that crop sustainable? How do you keep um, how do you keep those medicinal plants sustainable and coming back year after year to where you need them? And I know there have been um, years where it's been hard to find willow, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, we won't talk about how we go about <laughs> the the hunting rides on those might be a little uh skewed but uh it somehow I mean, some way it finds its way where it needs to be i mean for like sustainability you know um most of your plants they do flower and seed off um so usually if i'm going out trying to you know have a collection you know i'll sit there and pull the plant up and turn it upside down and shake it uh-huh. just to drop whatever seeds are left, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, hopefully it'll take for the next year. But some plants, they take two years, two, three years before they ever bloom. Mm-hmm. So that that was like, whoa, two yeah. years to bloom. Uh-huh. And so, and that sometimes that's what you got to have is that part of that flower mm. or part of that plant. Mm-hmm. You know, so. You talk about rabbit tobacco. Yeah, we got abundance of it, but you know I still do it. So if it dries out, I go pull some and I turn it upside down and shake it just to see if any seeds fall out and let her let the uh, let Mother Earth do what she wants to do. So speaking about rabbit tobacco, um, whenever Bobo and I were having a conversation before we jumped on here, 
He shared a story with me about one of his sons. And um, Bubba, why don't you share that story with us? Because I think it's really, I think it's so important to demonstrate how those little ones are learning, whether you recognize they're learning or not. Oh, they're listening. Yeah. Um, you know, I got a son, Parker Rowland. He's what, eight years old. Um, several years ago, uh, we was just walking in the woods, and, you know, he kind of pointed out and said, hey, Dad, what's this? And I you know, told him, hey, that's rabbit tobacco. And he was like, oh, okay. Never said nothing else about it. You know, this is recently, maybe a couple months ago, he was like, we was walking in the woods again. He was like, hey, Dad, what's that? And I looked at it. I knew what it was. But I was like, man, I don't know. Do you? He said, yeah. That's rabbit tobacco. I was like, uh-uh. Awesome. I was like, where'd you learn that? You don't remember you told me three years ago. <laughs> So it's just it's just nice knowing that you know our kids are listening, mm-hmm. and you just teach them what you can. Um, nobody knows everything, so whatever you do know, you know, reach out, or I want to say reach out, but you know, pass it down. Pass it down. Speak. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime Keith usually opens his mouth, I'm over here shutting mine. Like, <laughs> let, me, let me listen to his story. Mm-hmm. And so. Same here, buddy. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, what, how is rabbit tobacco used? What's it used for? Cool. Um, there's different medicinal plants or medicine that you can use. Um, oh, and as a disclaimer, do not use this as your medical advice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I personally do not know the medicinal value behind rabbit tobacco. Um, but I have heard, um, you know, there's different hot medicines that you can use in it, um, different things. Um, even today I've heard people actually boil it down and, you know, get the smell embedded into the water and they'll, you know, wait till it cools off, pour it into a water bottle and actually use it as a, uh, how is it? A tea? No, I wouldn't say a tea, but you know, during hunting, a scent killer. Oh, a scent I so, see. Yeah, you know, hmm. that's what you know. One person's done that I know of. Um, to me, I feel like even different other plants, like any kind of mint. Mm-hmm. I mean, mint is strong. Mm-hmm. If you brush up a pot, up against a piece of mint, you smell it. Mm-hmm. So if you did the same thing with mint, you know, you kind of smell like the woods. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those those kind of little things. It's Kind of unique, mm-hmm. as you could say. Mm-hmm. I always uh, told that take the rabbit tobacco and grind it up real fine, and it was a base to help with paste and put liquid medicine with it and mix it up, and it would stick and make a poultice out of it. Oh, huh. That's interesting, too. There are probably all sorts of things that... Um, we are missing out on that's just right there at our fingertips. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bobo, will you just touch on a little bit about river cane? Because that's another, um, that was another really important plant for Creek people. Um, and I know that it, is it still considered extinct or? No, it's not extinct. It's just hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 
what we're trying to do on you know tribal land is trying to get some transplanted um we are working on working with a fella in georgia and you know we're supposed to be purchasing some river cane that he grew from seed and putting it out on tribal property um river cane but river cane is is a weird plant it's tricky it's tricky and um you know, you can dig some up, transplant it, but it takes seven years before you get any results out of it. Mm. So, you know, you might get, you know, get the rhizome, start moving, and then you might have a little shoot pop up. And then three more years, you might have another small shoot pop up. And then, so then you waited seven years and finally it starts actually saying, Hey, I like this place mm. and it starts growing. Mm-hmm. But around here, the closest, you know, river cane that you can get, you know, is either out on the river. There's some in Jay, Florida. Um, there's small patches. I mean, these are very small patches scattered around and it's just one of the plants that we mainly use. I mean, we use them for our houses, we used them for weapons, blow dart guns, fishing poles. Um, I kind of like to call them little fish spears. Mm-hmm. And so there's always... And baskets. Baskets. Um, mats. Mats to uh, flutes. Mm. River cane flutes, musical instruments. So, I mean, river cane is a b- very big vital plant for us. And, you know, unfortunately... There ain't much of it here. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that we at the you know, Tribal Youth Conservation Corps have been trying to reestablish that mm-hmm. at different locations on tribal property. Mm. We also have some type of cane that we thought was river cane and wasn't for years around here. Something don't, Yeah, that, I right? think it's, um, it's either switch cane. Switch cane is a uh, native plant, too. Uh, it grows abundantly here. Um, there is a crossbreed. A lot of people call it um, a hybrid. So it's a mix between the two canes, river cane and switch cane. Um, and it does get tricky. Mm. You know, you look at it, oh, oh, that's river cane. It looks just like it. Well, the only real precise way that I've been taught to actually know is to actually dig up the root and cut it. Mm. And you have to look at it. Mm. Look at the at the the rhizome, and if it has a solid outer ring, then that's river cane. And then if it's got like a porce mm-hmm. um, outer ring, then it's switch cane or a hybrid. Mm. So, <clears throat> which you know, I found some really close. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with you know Alabama DOT, uh, Little River State Park people about trying to either go out there and see if they have any more. And trying to keep it protected, so you know that we are trying to work on. Hey, if we find some, is there a the way people to know? Hey, we want to protect it. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool, and that's I mean that's so um, it's so encouraging to know. Um, to kind of close us out, Bobo, when you think about the future when it comes to land. What vision do you have as it comes to the tribe? What would you you know? Paint, paint a picture in our minds with your words. State of Alabama. <laughs> I'm with him. <laughs> I like it. I like uh, it. 
maybe northwest Florida. Okay. I mean, I, I love that, you know, our council people are steadily buying land. I love it. Um, not just for, you know, Porch Creek, but I also love to see our own tribal people out there buying land, you know, and building their homes on it and living. You know, it's kind of, it gets to me just seeing, you know, how far we have come. Yeah. You know, coming from like Mr. Keith, I, I listen to his stories all the time and, you know, dirt floor, hole in the roof. If you're living that way now, you ain't doing something right. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you both. Um, Keith, any final words on what your vision is for the future when it comes to land and conservation, preservation, anything along those lines? I got to touch on the my experience with the River Cane we had going around here. Uh, Robert Thrower planted some River Cane over on uh, uh, Lynn McGee Road here in uh, Public Works, Bushogged it down. <laughs> so, That's one of the stories I've heard. Uh, <laughs> that kind of made the side of my head draw up. <laughs> I don't think it resonated with Billy Joe Gibson. He's the one that you know, if it was standing high, he was bushhogging it, and he didn't get the cultural significance. And Billy Joe was one of our full bloods, mm. and it didn't phase him. Mm. But now I think we got a lot more knowledge of what it is and the endangerment of it and the need to protect it. But I don't think we'd have got to Billy Joe either anyways. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, old habits is is hard to, to let go of sometimes. So my vision is just, I hope, like I said earlier, there's a food sovereignty push in Native America, and I think we need to get on board with that. And I'm learning more and more about what we can do to, you know, protect our our lands, use our lands to its best ability and head it help it protect us and you know in the future. Well, I thank you both for being here with us today and for sharing your insights and your opinions and your stories with us and um and for really just enlightening us and talking about something that we don't always talk about, but it's incredibly vital and critical and important to who we are not just as Native people, but as Creek people. And so I really appreciate you both. And and furthermore, I appreciate, Bubba, what you're doing from a conservation side and also what you're doing to teach those young men and um, and women as they come along and get interested as well because um, it's, it's, not, it's not just for guys, it's for girls too. Um, and it's important that all of us do our part to conserve and preserve um this this beautiful earth that we've been given to live on and keith i appreciate your efforts and and all that you do from a council level and a and a, and a, a perspective from leadership to make sure that when you're in dc you're advocating for our food sovereignty and for our land rights so i appreciate what both of you do and i hope we get the state of alabama back northwest florida i'm with y'all <laughs> thanks so much y'all thank you Thank you for listening to A Place Called Porch. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit our website, porchcreekindians.org, 
for more information, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram.